Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to The Hoon, where co-host Peter Bale and I go around the week's news in geopolitics and Aotearoa's political economy with a whole bunch of experts, academics and politicians, all to understand our worlds better and have some fun. Koto Katoa, and hello again. We're back with the Hoon, Peter Bale. It's great to see you, Bernard. I've already had one email this week, from, well, only one email this week, but a, a, a nice email from the man who accosted me very kindly in Jervoice Road to ask if I was if I was Bernard Hickey's uh, co-presenter. And you know, people have missed us, and I think we've got to sort of work out a way to try and keep this consistent. But Bernard, you've been in Europe. Yes, I saw you kept the carca going. In text form, that's right. How was it? It was really, really good. I had the most lovely time. Uh, now, this is a, something I'd planned for three years now. Um, Lynn and I uh, wanted to have a second honeymoon to... Um, what? Yeah, yeah. And we had a lovely time. We went to an island in Greece called Andros. We did a home exchange there in an old stone cottage with running water and electricity, but not much more. But running cats, lots of cats. Lots of cats. And anyone who's been to Greece will know that the cats are the most mangy, desperate, evil little suckers you've ever seen. <laughs> they are... How many did Lynn bring back in her hand? None. none. I, I didn't want to touch them. They, were they, like... they would be a bastard to declare at the airport. <laughs> oh, my God. They would definitely um, set off the dogs. <laughs> yeah. Well, in more ways than one. I think they'd give the dogs at the airport a bit of a run for their money, yeah. And, Bernard, you, you, you made a fairly deep assessment, I think, of the Greek economy. Oh, yeah. No, this was a full-on IMF-style analysis. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, th this was um, driving around quite a bit on Andros. Uh, we rented a car, and basically it looked like a place where a bomb had gone off in the real estate market in 2010, which is literally what happened. It was booming at the time. Everyone was building a second house. but And only declaring only declaring one of the houses to the tax department or none. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And in Greece, the way you build a house is you build a concrete uh, shell, and then you yep. fill it with bricks, and then you mortar the bricks, and then you do the house. Yeah, and you leave the um, the reinforcing steel sticking out the top so you can do the second story when you've got the money, right? Exactly. And also and because two-story houses get taxed differently from one-story houses. Yeah, and I'm told in some parts of Europe, if you've still got ha being half-built, you don't have to pay rates for it. That's so exactly right. So that's half-built places. Yeah, yeah. Thank God we had Roger Douglas, and he just did everything. You know, everything was straight up and down, and we were all good, good, disciplined Kiwis. And we just didn't tax land at all or wealth or mm. capital gains. Well that's, um, well, that's a very good way to do it, yeah. So the bomb went off in 2010, the Greek crisis. Everything stopped. And basically, it hasn't started again. So mm. every third or fourth house was actually just a third or fourth concrete shell. And there were hundreds of these all over the place and an awful lot of abandoned uh, houses. So all the young people had left these mm. islands and gone, if they were lucky, to Athens or to somewhere else in Europe. So there's been a clean out. Excellent. Can we move that? Can we all go and buy some of those, you know, well, second and I'm third say, houses? It wasn't that cheap, or at least. Um, uh, you well, know, when you're spending euros, it's not. But yeah, at the moment, yeah, no. So when when we were a bit more with with a bit more versus the euro, and this is one of the problems: the euro needs to depreciate an awful lot. Steady on, and 
The Germans won't let it. We won't have that kind of talk on this podcast then. Get- so that Greece was in perma recession, and uh, it was lovely for us. We had some wonderful swims and walks, and it was gorgeous. And you would go back there in a, a heartbeat, and uh, certainly the weather was better than it is here at the moment. Uh, then we went to uh, Paris for a week and uh, wandered around. Yeah, and I, I understand, Bernard, that you've made an equally acute uh, political analysis of of the unrest in in France by by observing it. You know, you've. You, you, you're like me, you, you know. You drive you drive through Northland, and you can you can you know write six hundred words about the um, state of Maoridom in in, um, in Northland, right? Mm, yeah. So we were there last weekend when these riots went off. Now we weren't there in the middle of the riots. Uh, they were tended to be on the outskirts of uh, Paris, not where the the band was. Uh, yeah, and uh, but in Bordeaux when we were there, a lot of the rioting happened in the centre of town in the fancy shopping areas, the pedestrianised streets, which are fantastic for the shops. Normally when people are shopping, there's you know hundreds of people wandering up and down these streets spending their euros. But we walked down the main street in Bordeaux and every second uh, shop had had their windows smashed in mm, mm. and the place with the fancy sports shoes. You know, oh, so it was, it was like Thames after a good ram raid. <laughs> it was a bit of that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I, I certainly didn't feel the the. I mean, if you if you looked at Twitter or whatever you were looking at and tried to work out uh, how things were going in in France, you'd think it was on the verge of revolution and the world was about to end. But actually, but in a sense, it is Bernard, isn't it? Because I mean, we might talk about this with with Robert, although I don't think I mean he I don't think that's his area of expertise as such. But you know, in a sense, it is because the right is just letting Macron handle all of this. And handle it quite badly, although it has subsided. But you know, there's some very deep-seated. You know that this will be in all the Marine Le, Marine Le Pen campaign things. She's not campaigning on it now because she's just letting him absorb it. So you know, we we are heading for quite a nasty. Well, not we because we're not living there at the moment. But you know, the the, the political prognosis for France is quite difficult, um, particularly. In, I mean, did you see Bernard that the the Voluntary contributions to the policeman who shot the poor boy, or who was allegedly shot the poor boy, has gone to a million, went over a million euros, which is far more than the the boy's family has received from anybody. You know, it's a, it's a really, it's a nasty situation, and it is one of those sort of social schisms. I also noticed that, and not to get away from your holiday, but there were lots of very nasty um, sort of anti-Islamic people, particularly from the US, diving into this. Uh, and <laughs> and spreading some absolutely fabulous disinformation, including clips from Fast and Furious of cars being tossed outside out, <laughs> out of car parks, which comes from an ep- and, and pretending that we're sort of from downtown Paris. Ah, uh, yeah, and and I bet they weren't French cars either. No, um, no, well, that was what I. Yeah, yeah. I, I, if it'd been a Citroen DS, I would have been crying as I saw outrageous. it. Outrageous. Yeah. Then you would have had real rights. That's right. That's yes. right. Let alone a Renault Four. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, no, I think you're right. There is a, a huge undercurrent of unhappiness with how um, the economy and and society have developed the last 20 or 30 years. The same people who are upset about losing in globalization are upset there. But there's the added pain, unlike in the United States where migration hasn't been the main sticking point. It's been- No, well, it's a country of immigrants, yeah. Mm, it's been the, the resolution of the original sin in the United States, which is- Slavery, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but in in Europe, they have a big problem, which they don't talk about much, but they can you can sense under the surface, 
which is that climate change is going to push hundreds of millions of people up mm. from Africa mm. and the Middle East into Europe, simply because that's the only place where you'll be able to live. In the last week or so, in parts of the Middle East and Europe, they've been hitting 50 degrees Celsius. Mm. Mm. The whip bulb temperatures are so high, people are literally, that's it, you die unless you've got air conditioning. Mm. Mm. And what you're seeing is all these boatloads of people going across the Mediterranean. In fact, while we were in Andros, um, oh, was that when the 500 people yeah. came across and got lost at um, yeah. Now, it wasn't yeah. our island, but there was a couple of other Greek islands where ships are rocking up and people are unloading and trying to get into mm. Europe. And then they eventually make their way to the to the um, channel crossing and try to get into Britain. Yeah. And people in Europe understand it, that they're at risk when the big mi- climate migration happens. Mm. And... At the moment, they're trying to put up their walls and and try to stop it. But as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, the climate crisis appears to have reached some sort of tipping points, and it is starting to get really ugly. Yeah. Well, did you see, I was thinking it was a very relevant, not not to take you away from, do do you want to describe the trip to the center of, to the Dordogne? I mean, you better just get the Mm. whole bloody, you know, get your pictures out. Tell us about the Dordogne before before I crap on the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, <laughs> went to Paris, which, by the way, because of the um, the cycling reforms of the last uh, five or so years by the new mayor, is a much friendlier, happier place for pedestrians, mm-hmm. and felt a lot younger and more vibrant and more together than any other big city I've been in mm-hmm. recently. Um, but then, of course, we took the train down to the Dordogne. It was incredibly fast and efficient. And actually, did, did we... the French government have anything to do with the provision of that train, Bernard? Because I was listening to that little twerp, uh, the national transport spokesman, Simeon, Simeon um, Brown, which always makes me think that he's an ape. But say bon, très bien, you know, merci bien. <laughs> Thank you very much to the French taxpayer hmm. for subsidising this amazing train. And of course, the the one we went back to Paris on to fly out was extraordinary. We went from Bordeaux to Paris in two hours. Yeah. And now, of course, Bernard, you wouldn't be able to take a, take a plane to compete with that, which was what Simeon Brown was rather... I mean, I, I, I actually have some sympathy for this in New Zealand, but I think it's... Is it, is it two and a half hours? The French government has said you, you can't fly from any of the main centres to anywhere else within two and a half centres. You have to take a train. Yeah. And it was noticeable. The trains were absolutely packed. I mean... None of us want to live in that kind of socialist superstate, but um, yeah. So your your diagnosis about the whole of Europe, then Bernard, having been in Greece and France, do give us to us. Yeah. Well. Um, yep. Europe faces climate migration, and we do as well at some point. Uh, and we were there what, from Australia. Jesus Christ! No, now, you, now you're t- now you're getting me worried. No, no, no. There's a hundred million people in mm. North and South Asia who will have the resources to fly into New Zealand and buy citizenship and places and universities for their kids. Thank God for that. The university that'll that'll help with the overseas student problem because they'll become domestic students. But yeah, yeah. There's there's that. And I, I as I've said in the past, I think we need to plan for a population approaching twenty million by the time we get to the end of the century, as if only because the pressure from the rest of the world to come here Mm. will be high. And also, it's a way for us to um, grow and change the economy and actually have a plan instead of just making it up as we go along and not actually having a discussion about how many people we're going to have here. Yeah, it was interesting, Bernard, I thought this week, you mentioned the climate, and of course, it affects population as well. And you know, I think we'll get to housing at some point during this uh, podcast. But 
you know, the, the fact that the <laughs> highest average temperatures ever in the Northern Hemisphere have been broken, the records have been broken twice this week. And there is this extra, you know, the way we had this um, heat wave in the oceans around New Zealand over the last 18 months or two years or so, where it's two, three, two to three degrees higher than it should have been or higher than average. Um, Europe is going through this, or particularly, you know, the, uh, the Atlantic and, uh, and the areas around, around the UK. You know, this is extremely serious. Mm. And we're seeing it too with the melting of the um, Arctic mm-hmm. cap. And the Antarctic. Yeah, and the Antarctic. So there's a chance within the next two or three years of what they call a, a blue ocean event. So that's mm. where during the winter for the first time ever, there'll be no sea ice at the Arctic. The Greenland um, ice shelves are melting faster than they ever have. We better go. We better fly <laughs> over there quite soon and go and visit it before it goes. Well, yeah. I, must, I must say, and there were some genuine questions from our, our subscribers to me in, in um, the comment sections of some of my posts from mm-hmm. Europe saying, you talk a lot about climate change, Bernard. But what did you do? How many tons of carbon did you expend? Yeah, but to, but we, we we should actually look into this and get. Uh, one of our guests mentioned this to me. One of our guests may, may, might have been Bronwyn Nicol. I can't quite remember that this whole thing. I mean, I've, I've decided to take on entirely, which is that this whole thing of um, individual responsibility for climate change is an entirely fossil fuel driven thing. So I've decided not to worry about it all and just to travel around talking about it as much as possible while. Um, taking the longest possible trips to the farthest flung places. We need to get you a very, very fast electric car to start with, Peter. Yeah, but Uh, that won't help me for going to Perugia or Spain. Well, there are some electric um, planes being developed, and, and then you can buy yourself a really expensive yacht. Yeah, but I think that that idea of individual responsibility, I think, is, is a really interesting one. And, you know, I, I think we've got a We've got to have this conversation in New Zealand. The government at the moment doesn't seem to want to have a conversation about climate at all. No, and I reported in today's email a survey that Ipsos has done, which shows that uh, New Zealanders have much less confidence now the government has a plan. Mm -hmm. But also, New Zealanders have this view that the best thing they can do to deal with climate change is to recycle which is actually the 60th most useful things you can possibly do. And the really tough discussions, which are along the lines of uh, to reduce emissions, that means having a different lifestyle. Now, at the moment, we would often consider that a lesser lifestyle. It would mean more expensive um, cars, travel, public transport, taxes. Um, And uh, at the moment, everyone in New Zealand is saying, yeah, we need to do something. But it's not. It shouldn't affect me. It's going to be someone else who does no, that. It shouldn't affect me, and it shouldn't affect government borrowing, and it certainly shouldn't be built by the public, and it doesn't include infrastructure. That's right. And so we are at that point where, because the climate change is happening faster than we expected, it's at the rubber hits the road moment, and everyone's looking at each other, going, "Well, you can pay for it." And actually, I don't, I'm not quite ready yet for this. <laughs> well, actually, I think we're just going to all be building fences, Robert. Professor Robert, how are you? Hi, hi Peter. Hi Bernard. So good to see you. We've missed you terribly, and I've noticed Robert that you just become an appalling media um, figure on everybody else's. Highly you know, productive. Highly productive. You've been no, 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 no. You've been amazing. It just, I just want you to know who you know who found you first and who loves you most is us <laughs> and our audience. Uh, we're really pleased to see you again, uh, Robert. And you're not wearing you're not wearing your Amish Prigozhin beard today. <laughs> that was hilarious, wasn't it? Well, yeah, no, I, yeah. I mean, unlike Mr. Prigozhin, this is the real stuff. But yeah, um, yeah. 
but yeah, I, I, I have a nasty feeling that one or two FSB people may have planted those wigs just to embarrass Mr. Prigozhin, but who knows? Oh, no, I don't think so. I think I think when you were a master of, you know, if you look at Victor Bout, who, of course, was the, was oh, yeah. the uh, Boot was the um, arms dealer ch- exchanged for the basketballer. You know, if you're going to do, if you're going to be a work global master of disguise, you need to have a couple of pictures on your phone so that you can put your own bloody wig on and make sure it's around the you know, front, not front to back. Apparently, the FSB returned the hundred million. Yes, hundred and eleven million dollars they yeah. found in his place. We want to talk to you about much more important things, but let's let's do let's talk about this first because he's gone back. Yeah. He's, I don't know whether you, if you saw the pictures of his house, which was surprisingly garish i mean who could possibly imagine that a former convict and now you know multi-million dollar mercenary leader and uh, all-round scumbag would have slightly ostentatious taste but the number of weapons that were also sort of just littered around the house was pretty extraordinary and then the uh, well i mean i've seen figures between 37 million dollars that was in a van literally that was in a van just being driven out of the Wagner thing when the cops arrived the other day. And then something like $100 million having been mm. that he's just retrieved today. I'm wondering, uh, Robert, I mean, not that you have particular insight to this, but you'll have a witty, a pithy response to it. Um, the fact that he has been allowed to go to St. Petersburg, clean up his house, you know, vacuum the floors, double mm. lock it so that the um, FSB don't get in again or the GIU don't get in again, suggest to me that there is something deeply fishy about this alleged agreement with Putin and therefore something even fishier than we thought possibly with the mutiny itself. Yes, I think it highlights the limits of the control that we assume that Mr. Putin had. You can't really... uh, I think the war, the invasion of Ukraine has severely weakened Mr. Putin's domestic political power. And I think the Prokosian episode highlights that. It's almost inconceivable, even a year ago, uh, that Mr. Putin wouldn't have accepted some sort of terrible uh, revenge or retribution for having the temerity to oppose the boss. And he's a long-time associate. Absolutely. No, but I think we know both. He wasn't necessarily opposing the boss. He was trying well, to expose Shoigu. And, he and, was. I mean, yeah. let's, let's be quite clear. Or was the mutiny a way to, sh- to um, flush out um, General Armageddon? Uh, Surovikin. I think, first of all, he's been opposing Putin for some time uh, by continually uh, blasting in public Mr. Shugoi and Gerasimov, the head of the, uh, head of the army, um, he is, in effect, rubbishing Mr. Putin. Yeah. Um, and, he, and the other thing was, on the eve of the mutiny, he did something extraordinary. You're quite right. He, for a long time, presented himself as a Putin loyalist who was frustrated that the Ministry of Defense in Russia were not giving him enough ammunition to do a more effective job with the invasion. Yeah. Suddenly, on the verge of the mutiny, and the day before the mutiny, he completely changed his narrative. He said that the invasion of Ukraine was based on lies. It was bogus. Mm, yeah, that exactly. Ukraine was no threat to Russia, and lots of people lost their lives for no good reason. Yeah, and um, this is why I'm surprised that so far, Mr. Prigozhin has not, as far as we know, fallen out of a window or drunk his last yeah. cup of tea. 
That's because, what I can't understand. It's how's this guy still alive? Well, I think he's clearly getting a lot of support. Mm. Uh, I think uh, it's no secret that senior sections of the Russian military did not want to invade Ukraine in the first place. That they seem to have a much more accurate assessment of Ukraine than Mr. Putin did, and the it's also quite clear, given that Mr. Putin arrested 100 members of the FSB almost immediately mm, mm. in the first month of the invasion, there was opposition there as well. Mm. So I think there, I, I think Mr. Putin's reluctance to move on Prigozhin, if that's what it is, may be purely linked to the, uh, the fact that at the moment he doesn't feel strong enough to do so. Of course, within another month, he may feel strong enough to do so, in which case uh, Mr. Prigozhin uh, needs to be very careful. Yeah. On the other hand, this could all be. I mean, I, I, I look. I don't want to. Uh, I mean, David, David Mooring in our um, chat raises the question about whether this is some sort of elaborate charade to expose those in the Russian military who might be opposed to Putin. Or, you know, it, it's a very difficult and complex. That we, you know, this, the the lines mm. of this are going to get redrawn and redrawn. Um, you know, a couple of times. Lukashenko today is so. Um, it, you know, he's at a press conference this morning. Steve Rosenberg from the BBC has done an astounding report. If you want to search for that, uh, not you, Robert, because I'm sure you've already read it. But you know, it's all so elliptical. It's also sort of Soviet. Yeah. Well, this is what happens with authoritarian regimes. It's all. Yeah. You have to decode every phrase. We might get, have to get Helen Clark in to talk about that. Actually, wouldn't yeah. We? I mean, uh, what we do know is that Lukashenko has got a bit of a spring in his step recently because mm. mm. he, I think. Was always has been worried about Belarus being forced into Russia. That is becoming part of Greater mm. Russia. That was always Putin's intention, by the way. Um, but he feels that he may have got a bit more wiggle room now because he's helped out the boss when the boss was in a sticky point. Yeah, but he's also brought the the boss's you know uh, pit bull in to a, to you know. He has. He has. It's a very interesting situation. One thing that intrigues me, however is that Prigozhin's challenge was carefully thought out. This was not a spontaneous... Yeah, um, or one assumes so. And it clearly helped. It was clearly... It was an inside job. He clearly had a lot of encouragement. I mean, we we do know that um, one of the top generals in the Russian army is now being detained, hmm. Sirokov. Sirovkin, you mean? Sirovkin. Yeah, Sirovkin, sorry. Christ, you're supposed to be the academic and know all these people. Oh, I know. I always forget names, but it's, uh, never mind. We're all fallible. Um, what? Yeah, except, of course, if you're Vladimir Putin and then you're infallible. Exactly. So so what I'm curious about is is why the Ukrainians seem to be just doing the whole slow, slow thing when, when um, they could have, in theory, um, had a really good crack at it while the Russians were looking uh, in their backyard. I think they are, but the, the problem... That they, I mean, the Russians are well dug in, and the Russians have been expecting this. But I think they are making progress. It, 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 it's predicted by the end of this month, Bakhmut would have fallen to um, the Ukrainians. They're also carrying out what many strategic analysts call continued shaping and softening yeah. operations. They are every night bombing key Russian installations. So I think. Did they, you see? Did you see the one? The, <laughs> I mean, it was definitely it was perfect for the Fourth of July, which yes. was a, a disused apartment block in the, in the centre of a population, 
just with absolutely going up like a oh. rocket, as it were. Yeah, but we're getting one of those a night, basically. Yeah. A ma- major ammunition dumps. So when we talk about the counteroffensive, people think they have visions of Ukrainian troops surging through the front lines, a bit the way they did in uh, Kharkiv and mm. uh, Kherson in the last quarter of last year. I think what because it's a thousand mile front line, and because the Russians are well dug in, I think the Ukrainians have switched tactics. I think what they're trying to do is basically immobilize the Russian defensive positions by cutting off their supplies, yeah, or at least at least complicating their Which supplies. Which they can do with HIMARS and yeah, yeah, and they haven't committed yet the major body of the force they've been training. So. Uh, I think it's early days. Uh, I think a lot of people expected a sort of blitzkrieg counteroffensive. The Ukrainians, if you listen to Bodanov, people like that, who's head of the military intelligence, they're saying that they're probably thinking the decisive moment will probably come round about October, maybe mm. late September. Mm. This is when they're hoping that's when they really put the Russian forces to flight. But it will, it will be a systematic softening up. And why are they gauging in this softening up? Why don't they just get on with it? Because the Ukrainians have taken a lot of casualties in the operation yep. so far, and they want to minimize that. Mm. And so you can understand it. If, if, if you're Zelensky and the military command of Ukraine, and someone says to you, well, we can minimize the casualties by softening them up for the next three, four months, and then committing forces, that makes a lot of sense. Well, Patrick Clark mm. points out, of course, they don't have any air support. Um, I, I read in The well, Economist today, which has an excellent uh, analysis yeah. of all this, that the Ukrainians are losing 10,000 drones a week. So we, if we let's go down to let's go down to PB Tech and buy a couple of uh, DJ DJIs and send them <laughs> over there. I mean, it's just absolutely extraordinary what's going on there and the way it's reshaping the whole the battlefield and the battle. Now, Robert, one thing though, just to bring you back to an area that really is in your wheelhouse—not that that's a word that should ever be mentioned in this podcast wheelhouse—is um, Chris Hitkins tonight, today, yeah. this afternoon, announced a sort of new mm, defence review, which is very much aligned to this. I mean, some people who have columns or used to have columns in North and South have written about this for a little while, possibly aided by uh, people like Robert Patman and your student, <laughs> Jeffrey Miller, that New Zealand is going to have to redraw its defence strategy. And it's not unrelated to Ukraine, mm. partly because we have the people uh, still, I believe, at NATO headquarters and at High Wycombe, Helping that, helping with targeting and helping with intelligence mm. analysis. This but, is this is where the New Zealand government um, brings PB Tech into it into the military and essentially buys buys drones. That would be a lot better than having three. As someone pointed out to me, to having half a billion dollars worth of um, ships that they don't have enough people to sail out at um, out from Devonport. But but Robert, the the, the Chris Hitkins thing. Just to uh, let me, mm. shall I explain what, what? Did you have a look at it? Have you? Seen- I did. I read it carefully, and it's a really interesting speech. Why don't you summarise it for us, please? Well, I think there are three key takeaways. First of all, Chris Hipkins said, having been in the job for a number of months, he's become more convinced than ever of the importance and the soundness of New Zealand's independent foreign policy, its independent Mm -hmm. approach. Uh, Secondly, he refused in the speech, take sides in what is, as he puts it, a a, a worrying and... uh, more difficult security environment for New Zealand. He mentioned the complex relationship with China, but he also said that relations with the United States and Australia, it was Australia first, then the Mm. United States, Mm. were excellent. 
So from his point of view, it's back to basics. He's reconfirmed the importance of an independent foreign policy, but he's making a distinction. He, like his predecessor and Jacinda Ardern, he's refusing to lump uh, two authoritarian states, China and Russia, together. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is here comes the nuance. He wants to have a warm and constructive relationship with China, uh, but he doesn't want to gloss over the differences. But when it comes to Russia, and this was, of course, on the eve of his visit to Lithuania and NATO summit, he said, we must do everything to support the international effort to reverse the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Mm. And he explicitly said, we must support the defeat of Russia. So it's in a sense, he's he's not um, joining a camp. He's not sort of saying we're against all authoritarian states. And he's, he's pres- aligning himself with, um, or aligning himself with with Albanese's rather moderate approach to this. Yeah, without saying I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to overturn the non nuclear policy. I think, and, uh, I think there's yeah. a, a third element here, which is very important, and this is different, and that is. He's saying that we have to spend much more on security and defence mm. in order to preserve our independent exactly. foreign policy position. And this has been coming from you, me, Jeffrey Miller. Yeah, you know, probably you're heavily influenced in all respects. But I, I think that's going to be a really interesting domestic political thing mm. in the run up to the election. And I suspect that as as Chris Luxon did, Christopher Luxon did with uh, the China trip. National is going to swing right in behind it because to do oh, yeah. anything else would look ridiculous. Yeah, but I think I think in a sense, it, it, he did mention AUKUS, but he's really saying mm. if we want to continue to have fruitful relations with the United States, Australia, and all our key allies, we have to demonstrate that we're prepared to do our bit. And th- this government has already committed four hundred million this year, but I think it's interesting because. When it came to AUKUS, there's been a bit of a debate, as you know, in this country about what we should do there. I think he basically sided with those who are saying, wait and see, don't commit ourselves. Not just to AUKUS, but he did say in there, uh, Robert, that we need a um, a viable military unit or a viable military capability. My supposition would be, having just said, heard, you know, heard Chris Hipkins say this, is that that's going to be a recommitment to... Essay uh, to the New Zealand SAS and mm. to New Zealand intelligence gathering because it's the two things that we're really good at. Although he also talked about uh, helping the Pacific defend itself more effectively, which possibly means something more in the naval area. Yes, I, I think what is clever about Hipkin's strategy is that I think he's shying away from picking a side, which he believes is not in New Zealand's best interest. And I think he's right. Mm-hmm. Um, but also he's indicating he's prepared to do a lot, a lot more on the defence front than previous prime ministers because he recognises in his speech he alluded to two distinctive new threats. Uh, one was uh, what he called the cyber intrusions. He mm-hmm. didn't name the countries involved, but he made it quite clear there were state-sponsored cyber intrusions. I think they would probably be Russia and China. Yeah. Um, but he also indicated that New Zealand had become a target. Again, he didn't elaborate, but he made it clear that New Zealand was a target for misinformation and disinformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and as he put it, we were almost a niche target. And I yes. think that was a hint that the protests against the uh, the anti-vaccination protests in the grounds of parliament 
um, had been affected by narratives on the social media from others, other countries. Well, I remember on the on the days of the, the marches to Parliament in February of last year, being absolutely stunned to see Russian flags being yeah. flown by the <laughs> protest marches. Yeah. Uh, this was uh, actually at the time of the invasion of Ukraine, and all sorts of uh, banners saying, you know, go mm. go Putin, he's great, mm-hmm. uh, you know, oh, and, yes. and and I, I was like. Surely that's a joke, right? Surely this is like some sort of post-modern, uh, you know, uh, ironic thing. But no, these were serious. These people no, no, were like- irony. Irony has died when those people get involved. Now, Bernard, do you think that the New Zealand public, in the run-up to an election in October, and I know we're going to get to V on 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 housing shortly, do you think the New Zealand public is going to accept a significant increase in defence spending, or understand it? The key thing would be whether the Treasury accepts it. Oh no, the treasury. Hipkins would not have said that today without the treasury being on board. Surely. Well, um, there's been lots of talk about um, extra investment and all sorts of things over the years, and essentially, treasury comes back as no debt track, no mm-hmm. debt track, and um, we've actually got 30 years now of of underinvestment in all sorts of infrastructure, including defence. Where Robert, I think we're down to is it almost one, one and a half percent of GDP. Is that right? I, I think it was down around about one, just under one percent. But I think with the four hundred million extra allocated early in the year by Chris Hipkins' government for defence, I think that's boosted it to about one point three. But it's still quite a bit below the one point five that many liberal democracies are spending on security. And it's certainly below the two the, the two percent proposed for NATO. Now, yeah, is it your belief, um, Robert? Before we go to V on housing, because I know Bernard will want to spend at least forty minutes on that and extend the podcast for you know a couple of hours, <laughs> possibly to talk about housing. You know, Kipkins is about to go to NATO. Is Jeffrey Miller right to suggest that uh, we're going to join some kind of NATO plus Indo Pacific unit? It's, it's kind of been coming, and and also if Chris Hipkins were to were to be able to say. You know, as he's sitting in the in the cheap seats at NATO at Vilnius this week, I think it's Vilnius. Um, we're going to go for two percent of GDP for defence, same as same as the is this supposedly a flaw for NATO? Uh, well, I mean, I'm not privy to Jeffrey's information. Um, but I'm you not are. sure. I'm sure you told him everything to say. <laughs> no, no, he's very much an independent actor, believe it or not. Um, but. Uh, I, I, I look. New Zealand believes in multilateral approaches to security. Mm. Therefore, uh, we're quite wary of coalitions of the willing, such as AUKUS, English three English speaking countries, basically taking it upon themselves to defend the whole of the Indo Pacific against the Chinese threat. Yeah. But we quite like the idea of joining together twenty nine other liberal democracies and working together in a defensive alliance. So you know, it wouldn't surprise me if New Zealand stepped up its relationship, although I haven't heard about this initiative about some sort of NATO force in the Indo-Pacific. I, I think it's more of I think it's more of a sort of an association rather yeah, than Yeah. But we're already hmm. a we're already a partner. We signed yeah. an agreement in twenty twelve, which has been extended already. So yeah, the look, I think the relationship will continue to deepen between the Europeans who make up much of NATO and New Zealand uh, while Mr. Hipkins is in Europe, of course, he's signing a free trade agreement with the EU. So, you know, this country sees it, its worldview actually is quite close to many mm. countries in Europe, not Britain, but the EU. 
And what do you make, Robert, of, of there was a very subtle thing which Patrick Smelly, our, our friend from Business Desk, called out in his piece about this, that while Chris Hitkins was glad-handing uh, Xi Jinping, Nanaya Mahuta was allegedly getting a bollocking from the foreign <laughs> ministry. What what do you make of that? Because I, I mean, I think we've said before that my, my personal view, not that it matters necessarily, is that Nanaya Mahuta has actually guided a very subtle and difficult yeah. foreign policy quite well. Chris Hipkins seems to have picked up the Jacinda thing quite well as well, although it's certain bits of it have got a bit, bit harder. What did you make of that China? Well, and- it, it certainly sounded like the good cop, bad cop routine where yeah. Mahuta said everything that Hipkins wanted to say to the Chinese but felt restrained from doing so and therefore walked into a first-class row with the chi- her Chinese counterpart mm. and Hipkins was left to deliver, you know, do, do all the niceties with the Xi Jinping. Well, oh, that's that's. Just, I, I thought that was a really good example of Chinese diplomacy. That you, you know, you you don't embarrass Chris Hipkins, but you do communicate something quite effective to to, to Nanaya Mahuta. Not that anybody wants to see her bollocked, but that actually seemed to be both of them seem like valid diplomatic tactics. Yeah, I get the feeling, just as I did with the Jacinda Ardern leadership, that the Chris Hipkins leadership is not going to take a backward step on all core values, commitment to democracy and and human rights. We're a relatively small player, but I think no one in this country would accept a, a sort of master-servant relationship with China, whereby we had access to this huge market, but we sort of dumbed down on our commitments that matter to most New Zealanders, such as democracy. Yeah, but we're also going to have to do with a master-servant relationship with the United States. But I think you're right that we're... I don't think we'd accept that either. <laughs> relatively yeah exactly so it's a diff- difficult balancing act thank you so much robert thank you thank you robert and and the segue here talking about human rights is the human rights commission's big report this week into the housing market we'd like to welcome v blackwood on to the hoon who is the manager of the big inquiry the human rights commission has done over the last a uh, couple of years, a really significant piece of uh, work, investigation, reporting on the depths of our housing crisis. V, thank you very much for coming on to the show. Kia ora, thank you for having me. Now, just for those people who haven't been following the um, uh, Commission's work over the last couple of years, could you give us a sense of how this developed and what you've been doing to come up with this final report this week? Yeah, absolutely. So, um When the Chief Commissioner Paul Hunt um, came on board um, to the Human Rights Commission, he brought with him a very strong focus on what are called economic social rights. So these are the human rights that New Zealand has committed to. We've signed up to them in many different international conventions. So we've made commitments at the international level that our governments are bound by but they don't appear in the Bill of Rights Act and they generally cost more money to deliver on because their rights like the right to education, the right to health care and an adequate standard of health and the right to a decent home. Um, and so when Paul joined the commission, he said that we have, including the Human Rights Commission itself, has largely neglected these rights. We've focused a lot on civil and political rights, which are also, of course, very important. But rights like these really go to the heart of people's ability to live in dignity. 
And it's also very difficult for someone to think about their civil and political rights, you know, about engaging in elections, thinking about who to vote for when they're struggling just to put a roof over their head. They are, you know, really preoccupied with um, the housing crisis and so on. And so that was the, the history of why we've chosen to focus on the right to a decent home. Um, in 2020 and 2021, we developed guidelines on the right to a decent home. And then using those guidelines as a lens, we launched the housing inquiry. And that's what we've been working on for the last two years. And and what did you find? Um, it, from my point of view, having covered housing for uh, 20 years or so and seen the increasing number of people who are homeless, who are living in mouldy, cold homes, looking at the sheer numbers of about of affordability, the very high proportion of disposable income that renters in particular have to pay. Uh, it's clear to me that um, uh, our housing situation is uh, a stain on the, on the on the country, let alone uh, a drag on our society and 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 politics. But what what did you find in in those couple of years? Well. Bernard, I think you're right, you know, that anyone who works on housing or who has a focus on housing, whether that's working on the front line or looking at the data as you have, wouldn't be surprised what we found because we found just the same. Um, but what we brought to it was the human rights lens. So we wanted to show that the right to a decent home isn't abstract. It's got really key features that can be measured and government's obligation is to make progress. So progress towards those key measures, progress towards housing being more affordable, more habitable, more sustainable and accessible over time. And in too many instances, we found just the reverse. In fact, um, when we released our measuring progress work, we found that across six out of the seven indicators, the data showed that we either weren't making enough progress, we're going backwards, which was for affordability, housing has got dramatically less affordable over the last three decades, and that affordability is not um, affecting everyone equally in society either. There are certain groups in society that are experiencing that much more acutely. And then on top of that, we found that the government um, and the housing system in general really don't have sufficient accountability mechanisms to ensure that where things go wrong or where policies aren't delivering, um, that there is constructive accountability, mm. independent review. It's Peter here. Do, do, do you think that the um, New Zealand public, you know, writ large, understands what the role of the Human Rights Commission is and, what, and why you get into these deeply fundamental issues? I think it's, you know, I respect that it's quite difficult because the Human Rights Commission does have a lot of different functions. And so this is one of our functions. But because we've got such a broad mandate, it can be a little bit difficult to see how we, you know, interact on everything. But one of our functions is to um, research and to inquire into any issues that we think may be human rights issues. And the housing crisis in New Zealand is absolutely a human rights issue. When the UN Special Rapporteur came to New Zealand in 2020, she called it a human rights crisis. And that should have been a warning sign for the government then, but 
you know, even then too little has been done to turn it around. So what is the Human Rights Commission recommending as ways to hold government accountable? Um, having reported on this area for so long and and pointed fingers at people saying this is outrageous and everyone says, um, sure, <laughs> and then nothing happens. How would you, and what are the recommendations on accountability? So one of our recommendations is that the right to a decent home needs to be implemented into New Zealand legislation. So that could be through amending the Kainga Order Homes and Communities Act or passing a new National Housing Strategy Act, essentially saying that the right to a decent home is recognised in New Zealand law and that all housing policies initiatives must have as one of their goals promoting that right. But alongside that, the accountability piece is so important to have an independent agency, a watchdog, I think I've seen it described in media in the last couple of days, that can review strategies, policies, say, how is this progressing your human rights obligations? If it is progressing them, fantastic, great, keep on with the good work. If it's not making progress, they have the opportunity to say, no, that's not good enough. Go back to the drawing board and try again because these human rights yeah. are fundamental. Vic, who can who can help explain it? Because I think you know you're in a very difficult year with an election in a, in less than a hundred days now. Um, your work or the or the 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 office of the human rights commissioner will get politicised to some extent. This is possibly the most. Well, actually, I can think of two or three other political things that you could get involved in. We'll definitely have you on. What, what can the New Zealand media do to explain your role or your organisation's role more effectively and also the, the obligations? Because I, I worry sometimes when I, when I look at these issues that it comes down to the you've got to look after yourself, you've got to, you know, you know individual responsibility, and we know where those kinds of conversations lead you into quite, a, quite a, an interesting and difficult racial New Zealand conversation. I'm not sure that those obligations that you refer to are terribly well understood by by people, or including in the media. I agree. And that's one of the pieces that we've tried to work on. So we've put together um, tools, resources, guidance that's available now on our website as a toolkit. Um, the obligations one is, is important. And, you know, one of the misconceptions that I hear a lot is, well, we can't just go out and give everyone a home overnight. People have to work for it. And that, that does misrepresent what the right to a decent home involves. It's not about giving everyone for free a decent home. It's about the government making the conditions possible that everyone can access decent housing, whether that's through private rentals, through owner occupation, through other forms of, you know, home tenure. And what we've seen all too often is that government is just not doing that. They are not making the conditions possible where everyone can access. So but before Bernard then brings you into other areas of this obligation, so how do you, I know this sounds naive of me, but I, I've been away for a long time. How does the organisation operate in that political climate? What influence, do, do, is, where does your influence come from? Is it through the government or is it because you presumably also have great connections to the opposition? So we are an independent crown entity, which means that we are independent of government and that independence is very hard, hard protected. And for that reason, it's very important to make clear that 
you know, perhaps despite what some people would would say, we do aim, you know, human rights are apolitical. And perhaps that's naive of me to say, but they're apolitical in the sense that they go beyond politics. Every government, no matter their political colour, is obliged to follow and, you know, progress the rights that they've promised to deliver. Um, and so as a result, we try and make it clear that, Human rights don't say which way you have to develop your policies to get to the destination, only that the point is you get to the destination. And so that's what we're trying to encourage as well, to encourage every MP across Parliament to think about their housing policies and whether they effectively deliver on these rights that they've promised for every New Zealander. Thanks, Fee. I, I just think that would be great to get that better understood. I, I, I don't fully understand it, and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people don't, but thank you. And just trying to understand, too, New Zealand's commitments as a sovereign nation under the United Nations to do certain things, uh, mm. which we sort of ignore, But uh, and there's no UN police force coming to, you know, take the prime minister away and put them in prison or anything mm. silly. But these are legal agreements, and mm. they should be reflected in the way the government operates. Could you talk a bit more about what those are and, and how they factor into the government? That's right. So these are legal commitments, as you've said. They, they should factor. And what we've said is that when policymakers in housing and urban development, for example, are developing their housing policy, they aren't asked when they report up to Cabinet, does this policy that you've developed for us effectively deliver on our legal obligations in international law? They aren't asked, does this accord with the human rights obligations we have? They look at um, whether it's compliant with the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act, but if it's a commitment that's not in the New Zealand Bill of Rights Act, it's missing in action. And that's one of the reasons we'd like to see the right to a decent home enshrined into New Zealand legislation so that it's less easy to ignore, less easy to forget about. So we're just about to go into an election campaign and, and I'm not going to ask you to um, uh, make judgments or, um, uh, you know, uh, say... Oh, no, please do. Party... <laughs> 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 um, uh, you look like you've got a long career ahead of you, which is great. Um, but... As from the point of view of, of me as a journalist who's going to be yeah. asking various political parties for their housing policies and and comparing and contrasting and trying to work out how it fits into all of this, what sort of questions should I be asking of the political parties on their housing policies that would answer some of the um, recommendations that you've made here? For example, you know, the first thing I'm going to ask both all the main parties is, do you agree we should have a housing um, ombudsperson uh, as one of them? But what other sort of questions should we be throwing at the politicians? Yeah, that's a really great question, actually. And we would love it, obviously, if, if more journalists did ask these hard questions. Um, one of the things that I would suggest that you ask is, how does your housing policy move forward you know, making mm. the right to a decent home real? How does it treat housing as a, a fundamental human need, not just as an investment commodity? Mm. Um, 
that's not to say that people can't make money off housing. People make money off, you know, running businesses. And yet, if you run a business, you have obligations to treat your employees fairly. Mm -hmm. And so running rental housing should be no different. Um, And so I think pushing politicians more on how their housing policy will actually effectively move forward. Um, What I will say is, you know, we we do have to be apolitical and I'm a member of the public service, although we're an independent crown entity. Um, so I certainly wouldn't want to commend any particular party policy. We encourage any party policy in housing that recognising, that recognises the, the nature of, you know, housing as a human right. Um, and we were dismayed to see the the retraction of the bipartisan um, medium residential density work because that was really positive as a move, you know, that housing, if we're going to make these human rights real, I think that we have to stop treating housing as a political football. And so it was really positive to see bipartisan agreement across the house Mm. to try and move forward. And so to see that um, retracted now is disappointing. Um, I would hope and encourage, you know, politicians in future to think about how they can work together more in that space, which, again, might be naive in the election period, but we can live in hope, you know? No, no, these are exactly the questions I'll be looking to ask. V. Blackwood, the manager of the uh, Human Rights Commission's uh, inquiry into housing, uh, thank you very much for coming on to the Hoon. Lovely to have you on. V, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, that will be one of the main um, areas that I try to focus on the next 99 days before yeah, the Yeah, we were talking about, when we, I thought that was interesting the other day, we, I thought she was terrific, Bernard, also this idea that doesn't matter how you get there, but the objective has got to be pr- to provide mm. that everybody can has the, has the access to these things. And none of the parties have actually said what success looks like when they yes, talk exactly. about things like affordability or um, how warm a house should be or uh, how dry a house should be. We've got some yeah. measures here and there forcing uh, landlords to put heat pumps in and that sort of thing. But actually, we have no real you know, national target which says we want to make sure no one pays more than 30% of their income in rent. Yeah. It doesn't have to necessarily even be – because that, that covers the whole renting thing. It just covers mm. – uh, It's it, we might have once called this just having a fair go. Yeah, and unfortunately, because housing has become the um, the reason for our economy, I, I believe that we're a housing market with an economy attached. Is that right, Bernard? Exactly. Not that anyone's ever said that before. Yeah. <laughs> and every time I look at the problems we have in our society, you always come back to it's all about the housing. And uh, it was really instructive to me that. Um, Going back down, having been in Paris and Athens and various mm. other things, Auckland had more homeless people, more people who were clearly mentally ill, um, asking for money in desperate situations than either Paris or Athens had. Bernard, what do you? What do you, we, we discussed this when we had lunch yesterday? Uh, what are you going to do for your election coverage? to make it yeah. more than just the horse race about who's up, who's down, and whether Chris eats fucking sausage rolls or yeah. the other one is bald, you know? Yeah, what exactly. Are gonna, what are uh, you going to do? Well, one of the things I've you – know, taking time off for a 
not a holiday, but it's some time away. It gives you a chance to reflect on what you want to do that's different. And one of the things I really want to do over the next 99 days is spend a lot more time talking about solutions. Some people call it solutions journalism. Mm -hmm. So this is instead of trying to report the horse race, who's going to win, who's going to lose, who's looking better, who's looking worse, mm. what does the poll say? Lots of people already do that. What I'd like to look at is what are the actual uh, policies and solutions that the various parties are putting forward. And if then none of those look like they're going to work or are actually going to happen, mm -hmm. what policies should be there? And because one of the one of the privileges and opportunities we have with the Kaka is because of the support of all of our subscribers, we're not um, uh, 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 looking after the interests of a particular company or interest yeah. group or yeah. political party. We can say, here's what we think from our assessment of the policies and what we know. When you say we, this is going to be you, isn't it? Because it's not going to be me. I can help <laughs> you with it. But but yeah. maybe, don't, do, do you maybe need some sort of, I mean, I, I think our audience could possibly help you with this, don't you? Yeah, well, I often ask people uh, in our chat sections, and yeah. I see fantastic um, information, tips, questions in the comments from paying subscribers regularly, which get me to think about things in a different way. Yeah. They point me to information sources I hadn't thought of. And, uh, you know, as it, the, the Kaka has become more than just um, uh, my reporting or interviewing or commentary, there's a lot more stuff below the fold, if you like, co uh, comments from people, and also in the chat section that I find um, very useful and others find useful as well. And uh, I think there's a role during the election campaign for um, us to try to report on the various uh, policies and come up with some solutions. All right. Well, why don't you and I, because I'm, I'm, as you know, I hesitate to comment on New Zealand politics more than just saying I quite like the fact that David Seymour has a Lotus Super 7 or Caterham, I think it is a version of that. But um, we should look at this because I, I think it's a really innovative way to, well, it's an interesting way to try and do it, Bernard, and I think it will set you apart because I think there's some really, you know, there's some very interesting things happening in this election. Yeah, and there is a model around um, called solutions journalism, which is yep. where you approach a story not from, you know, he said, she said, or, um, you know, who's winning and who's losing, but actually here's a problem and what are the solutions? All right, so next week, should I get, would people like it if I got a, a regional expert on solutions journalism to come in and do five minutes to explain what we're talking about? What a great idea. What a great idea. Fantastic. And I've got a fantastic person in Australia who's, I mean, I'm sorry she's Australian, but, and there's another chap who's in Korea who I've spoken to because I have some background in the solutions area. Um, and I wouldn't want to put you into a formula about this, but I think they could bring some, you know, some, some perspective to this. Absolutely. And a great potential Hoon guest on as well, to, so that people who are the supporters for the Kaka can see the sorts of things that we could do that are a bit different. Yeah, good. All right, Bernard. Fantastic. Hey, um, Peter, it's lovely to be back in the harness, if you like, of the Hoon. Oh, um, don't, talk, don't tell them about our harness, Bernard. People <laughs> would really be worried about that. Then. I have a very funny story to tell you about harnesses, but it involves San Francisco, and I don't think it's no, safe for no. work. No, no in S in NSFW. No. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, thank you very thank much. Thank you, everybody. And we shall be back again at 5 o'clock uh, next Friday. And thank God for Simon. Yeah. Ka kite ono, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.